But uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 was where I'm going to be reading from. And we will start with verse 22. And then I'll read to you the American, New American Standard Version. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go to verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, and speaking of Jesus from the heavens. So it says, for if they escape not, looking back to the Old Testament, if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, meaning Moses, much more shall now we escape if we turn away from him, Jesus, that speaketh from heaven whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. That's a quote straight from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. And this word, yet once more, he says again, he's repeating that segment from Haggai 2. Yet once more, this, this word, yet once more, put that in quotes, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. This is New Testament, folks. Praise God. And he says, wherefore, verse 28, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about an unshakable kingdom. An unshakable kingdom. Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, for your presence, for your power, for your manifold promises. We stand in awe of you, O Lord, in reverence of your name and your presence. For you are a holy God. You're a righteous God in all your ways. You're so good to us because you're a loving God too. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your presence and bring light and illumination to our hearts and our minds. Help us to see the deep things of your spirit that we may benefit, profit, and be built up stronger in our faith and give us understanding as never before. In Jesus' name we pray. Let the church say amen. amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Now keep your place there in Hebrews 12, and I'm going to read to you the New American Standard Bible, and it says it this way. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now has promised, saying, quote, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, that's physical things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, 
Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Praise God, for our God is a consuming fire. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians after oh, the first generation of Calvary. And the book of Hebrews is, is a foundational piece of holy writ comparable to the book of Romans. The book of Romans was addressed to an audience of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people who have absolutely no background in, uh, in Bible knowledge and, and the God of the Old Testament, uh, the temple rituals and blood sacrifices and so on, though they've had blood sacrifices, but not in the context of the Old Testament Mosaic law. But the Hebrews had all that. And the book of Hebrews is written to these Jewish Christians who are now transitioning from Christianity, or rather from Hebrew temple-oriented worship and animal sacrifices to the message of Calvary and the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and salvation by faith and, and uh, the repentance uh, for our sins and baptism in Jesus' name and receiving the Holy Ghost. And, and the book of Hebrews is an analogy and an examination of the Old Testament in the light of the new. And God is trying to instruct his people. Uh, and when you look at uh, uh, chapter 12, he uh, says some very important things. Now, from uh, chapter 1 through 12, he, uh, he uh, really is, is uh, reminding the, the, the Jewish Christians to hold fast to the newfound faith. Uh, and, and so when you look at chapter 12, verse uh, 1 through 4, he exhorts them to look unto Jesus. And he, in verses 5 through 11, talks about how God allows us to go through some difficult times. And he mentions chastisements and scourgings and so on. But he encourages us basically to get strong and to get right and to to. Get a hold of this truth and then keep watching, watching and praying. Watch out because temptation is around the corner. And in verses 25 through 26, the book of Hebrews tells us that when everything is shaken, the only thing that matters is where you're standing. Because God is going to shake things up and God is in the business of shaking and we see that throughout biblical human history. God shakes things to test them, to take away the things that don't pass the test. Come on, come on. Hallelujah. And in verse 28 and 29, it, it reveals to us this unshakable nature of the kingdom of God. That is the unshakable kingdom. That's the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. But it's been God's plan from the very beginning, from the very beginning of time to establish and bring forth this kingdom. Yeah. It's to reveal his glory and his power and authority. And finally, reassume the position that he occupied over the earth from the very beginning. But man's sin foiled all that. It spoiled all that. And throughout history, then God had to intervene and shake things up and and interfere in human history so that his plan and his purpose 
would find a place in human consciousness. That mankind would know that there is a God and there's only one God, one true God. And he has his hands in the affairs of man. And not only does he have his affairs in the, hand, in the lives and affairs of men, but he has a plan and he's, he's going somewhere. And through this space and time between beginning and the end of creation, he has a plan to fulfill. And he has never deviated that from the beginning and it will never change all the way to the end. And here we are towards the end of this continuum and we are living in special times. And sometimes we're tempted to think that that, you know, we, uh, whatever is happening around this is a fluke and it's, it's just attributed to, you know, uh, a man's inability to govern himself. That's, that's true to a certain point, but it's more than that. It's also God interfering, intervening to reassert himself time and again in your consciousness and mind, particularly in the hearts and minds of his own people. Right. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to assert to not only the Jewish Christians, but really you and I in this time and age in the 21st century. Because when you look back in the Old Testament, we'll see that God mentions his kingdom time and again. In fact, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, and uh, we look at uh, the time after he came, they came to the Red Sea, and they have come to a place where uh, he, he uh, announces his commandments and, and then uses Moses to expound those commands, uh, he, he tells them in, in Exodus chapter 19, 6, that, that if you hear my voice and if you obey me, I will make you a kingdom of priests unto me. His plan was not just for the Levitical priesthood to officiate and work. In it. No, no, his plan was originally for all of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. One that knows God and they could be intermediaries, all of them, between a lost Gentile world and a holy God that had revealed himself to his people, specially created to reveal his glory. And so in, already in Exodus 19, we, we read about this, this, this plan of God of establishing a kingdom. Interestingly enough, in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, and we're talking about 2,500 years ago or so from today. That's 500 years or so before Calvary. Daniel, the prophet, prophesied. God showed him a lot of things. In fact, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, go hand in hand. The, the, Daniel and, and, and John saw the same things in heaven. And different things that are described from a different perspective, but it's all the same thing. And in chapter 2, we read about how the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. And, and he was so troubled by it that he, he, he called his magicians, his astrologers, and all his wise men together and, and said, Look, I dreamt a dream. I have no idea what it is, but I'm so troubled. I want you to tell me what I dreamt, and I, tell, I want you to tell me what it meant. And those guys were totally, totally at a loss. I said, Look, king, with all due respect, uh, there's not been any king that required of his, their magicians and their wise men to, 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 uh, to come up with a dream that anybody dreamt. Now, tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no, I want you to tell me. I have no idea what I dreamt. And he got so upset and mad that he threatened to kill them all. 
until news reached Daniel and said, whoa, just a minute. He told the captain of the guard, uh, tell the king, give me a little space here. And he called together Shadnach, Meshach, and Abednego. They also had Hebrew names, and he prayed together, and God gave him the answer. And when uh, he got the answer from God, he called the, the captain of the guard and said, take me into the king. And uh, the king uh, asked him, are you Daniel, uh, whose name was Belshazzar? He says, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen and the interpretation thereof? And, David, uh, and Daniel said, he says, uh, in the presence of the king, the secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. That's interesting. That is important because that speaks of us. The latter days shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out of my spirit upon. Talk about the latter days of the last days. This is thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth the secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. Do you understand that God is aware of every dream you have when you're laying in bed? He knows every thought that you think from beginning to end. Your whole life, every thought that's in your brain, whatever you're thinking right now, he's able to know and read. And here was Nebuchadnezzar now, the head of a main empire, the biggest empire at that time, 2,500 years ago in the Middle East. And he laid on his bed and he's saying, I wonder what's going to happen in the future. I'm human, I'm, I'm mortal. And yeah, they, some call me a god, but... I know I'm mortal. What's, what's going to happen? And God gives him a dream. And that dream refers to the future. And that future dealt with the five main kingdoms and empires that were to come to pass. Five. Only four is mentioned by name. Well, not by name, but by, by, by well, uh, named by, by number. Uh, the fifth is really part of the fourth. And, but, but I separated to make a distinction because, you know, the first was, as, as Daniel interprets, he saw this great, great image and the head was of, of gold and the breast and his, and his arms was of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass and had legs of iron, his feet of iron and part of clay. Part iron, part clay. So, you know, you know the story, the, the, the big colossus, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and Daniel interprets and says, you know, that the head of gold is you, king. It's Babylon. But every kingdom afterwards is, is inferior to the previous one, and yet it is governed by the same spirit. It's world domination. It's that spirit of world domination. It's the spirit of Nimrod that went all the way back to the Tower of Babel, and God had to intervene then too. And so he, he gave him this, this interpretation of the dream and, and the image. 
And he talked about the fourth kingdom, which is the fourth empire. It, it's the Roman Empire. And it's two legs of iron. And it's described as two legs because, as you know, the Roman Empire split into the east and the west. Some Europe, some in the Middle East, some even in North Africa. But the ten toes come from the two legs. And there's no distinction between the fourth and the fifth kingdom because the toes are attached to that, that, those legs of iron. And those toes, it says the ten toes are part iron, part miry clay. And even he said, as, as, my, as clay does not mix with iron, so in these latter days when his kingdom, this fifth kingdom I call it, okay, to distinguish between the Roman Empire back 2,000 years ago versus that same spirit of the Roman Empire that is today, that is brought together the United Nations of Europe, which is a reconstitution of the old Roman Empire and it's expanding still. And we're watching it happen. And God has talked about it a long time ago. 2,500 years ago, Daniel saw the vision. And the ten toes are the kingdoms that are coming about now. That's not ten nations per se. It's really a symbolic representation of the unity, a conglomeration of many represented by ten. There are ten virgins represented the whole church. doesn't mean ten different church congregations Ten virgins to represent the entire church. But it also, the ten represents judgment. Right? We always talk about ten. Ten commandments to judge sin. Ten fingers. Amen. Reminding us that the works of our hands will be judged. Ten toes to remind us that our steps are going to be judged. That where we go, what we did. Judgment. Ten virgins, five foolish, five wise. The church will be judged. The world will be judged. And this last empire will be judged. And so this is what he says. This is what Daniel saw. And he said, As whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, potters, excuse me, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Look at Europe today. you got the strong, powerful, even military and economic nations. Then you have those that are weak, that are broken, and tr struggling, trying to get in. Eastern Europe is still trying to get on his feet. Amen. Ukraine trying to join. And Russia upset about it because the European Union, this reconstitution of the old Roman Empire is growing and challenging its, its, its power in the region. There's a power struggle there, you see. And the EU is in that same very spirit. You see, human government is always about controlling your life. Of how you live, what your values are, how you're going to work. Defining right and wrong in their word, not according to God. And so here this, this kingdom is coming together in Europe as the reconstitution of the old Roman Empire. And it says this shall be partly strong, partly broken and weak. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves 
with the seed of men, a great variety of people that come together. Yes, we're united. However, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. They're united, but they're not really together. They're together as one lump, but they're not mixing too well. Because not clay and iron doesn't mix too well. Doesn't stick to it. It's the same thing now with, with the European Union and what is coming together. But here's, here is, is the point that I want to come to in verse 44. It's crucial. And in the days of those kings, these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so he concludes, for as much as thou sawest, that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Nebuchadnezzar falls down, acknowledges it, makes Daniel the number one guy after him in Babylon. But he saw in his vision also a great rock made without hands that comes and is smashes against the feet of this huge giant colossus. And that colossus is destroyed. Smattered, it's broken and, into, and broken into smithereens. That means all these kingdoms, the spirit of that kingdom to rule over the people of the earth will be broken forever. And God's kingdom in this age, in the last 2,000 years since Calvary started, since Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus gave to Peter the keys to this kingdom. He unlocked the door with his gospel message. Jesus has established a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Do you understand what you're a part of? You're a part of a kingdom that's not a part of this world. It is a different kingdom, a different king, a different potentate, one who rules in righteousness, a God of love, a God of holiness. Amen. And he does not get along with the, with the potentates and the kings and the dictators of this world. That world and those kingdoms can be shaken, but the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. Those kingdoms will be destroyed, but the kingdom of God will never be destroyed. John 3, 3, 7, Jesus talked to Nicodemus, spoke about the necessity to be born again to get into the kingdom of God, the kingdom. Matthew 6, 10, Jesus instructs us to pray in the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus tells us, seek ye first the kingdom, and all these things shall be added unto Matthew 16, 18. Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter. And then we read in Hebrews 12 that this kingdom is an unshakable kingdom. Right. See, the early Christians of the Hebrews were facing earth-shaking challenges, to say the least. As they were coming out of Old Testament animal sacrifices and ritualism and legalism and all that, they had come to 
to their newfound faith in Christ where they're now not practicing taking animals to the temple anymore. And as a result, they were ridiculed, rejected. They were persecuted by their fellow Jewish believers. And they called them as heretics and, 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 and turning their backs on God. And, 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 and they felt the pressure. And many of them were tempted to go back to the old way. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews was warning the, warning the Jewish Christians, don't you do it. Don't you dare do it because the, the, the gospel you have obeyed, the one that you have heard, is, is somebody, is not like Moses. Yes, he was a lawgiver. And yes, Jesus Christ brought new commandments, but it's a new covenant also ordained in blood with his own blood, not by the blood of animals in the Old Testament. And if those people who obeyed the Old Testament covenant that was established by the blood of animals uh, were killed if they disobeyed the law, how much more do you think you're going to be punished uh, when you disobeyed the voice of God that spoke to heaven through his human flesh when he robed himself in humanity? Don't you dare go back, he says. You can't go back. You've come too far. And he's also trying to tell them, look, the same God who established the old covenant is the very one who's establishing the new. And the book of Hebrews reminds the Christians that whenever God does a new thing, that he intervenes in human affairs by shaking up the order of things. In fact, this you may call divine disturbance in Jewish history, uh, in that particular time when Jesus lived, began with the invasion of Judah by the Roman Empire. It be, Judah became a, 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 a province of, of the Roman Empire. And it ended with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the destruction of that kingdom, earthly kingdom. And Israel seeks, ceased to exist for almost 2,000 years, as you know. Those are divine disturbances. Why? And, and, and when, when the book of Hebrews was written, this did not happen yet. The temple was still standing. Animal sacrifices were still going on. And this transition is still taking place. And the Jewish Christians are wondering, well, what's going on? Did this, what do we do? Do we stand on our faith or, or do we do this? And, 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 and they're shaking. And they were exhorted to hold on to the newfound faith. Don't neglect your church attendance. Keep coming together. Strengthen one another. Because when you stay away from church, you're going to get weaker in your faith. And you're going to end up going back to the old ways. And, and you know, once you go back to what, what God destroys, you're going back to the beggarly elements of the world. You know, there's no more repentance for sins. You can't get forgiveness of sins through animal sacrifice once you have been baptized in Jesus' name by faith, understanding that his blood is worth a whole lot more than the blood of any animal. And so in Hebrews 12, 27, we're told that sometimes, you know, God speaks to us through these shakings and these disturbances that occur around us. In culture and events and things that transpire around the world, it certainly did in the time of the Jews in this transition period. And the church did not, the Jewish Christian church, didn't really understand what was going on. There was political intrigue. There was political disturbances. There was, there was war and, and rumors of wars as, as there are in our days. 
There's much confusion and despair among the believers, even as there is today. And the important thing for us to understand is that God speaks through us through these divine disturbances. He speaks to us primarily through the word of God. Yes, hands down. But he uses divine disturbances. There's interventions in human history. Major events. Sometimes either causes them or allows them to happen to get our attention. So that we can put the spiritual back into the forefront and we put God where he belongs rather than put him on the back burner someplace as we run around being busy about our own lives. And so when we look back on this concept, uh, we see that many times in biblical history God used these disturbances to bring attention to the greatness of what he was about to do. Israel at the Red Sea, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, what did he do? Look at the ten plagues. What was that all about? The most powerful empire of the world then. And here, one and a half to two and a half million people, they were God's people. They were Israelites. And God wanted to bring them out from Egypt. And Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. That's, that's the way Egypt always is. The world doesn't want you to go to church. The world doesn't want you to serve God. The world doesn't want you to do the word of God. The word, world wants you to be a slave to them. Our government, our world wants all, of, all that you have. He wants your money. He wants your taxes. He wants to govern what you believe and how you live. He wants your kids. That it's mine, it's not yours. I'm talking about Egypt. It hasn't changed. You think the world has changed? You think the devil has changed? You think humanity has changed? You think the human heart has changed? Nothing's changed. Everything's the way it's always been with respect to sin and sinful humanity. And God hasn't changed. Thank God he hasn't changed. He's an unchanging God. And he still has a plan. He, he hasn't given up on his plan. You and I are part of that plan. And we will make sure we're part of it. I'm glad I'm a part of that plan, aren't you? Israel, the rest see, look at the ten, ten plagues upon Egypt. And, and, and yet when God finally comes to the last plague and they put the blood on the doorpost and the death angel comes, the Passover takes place, and the firstborn of all of Egypt is killed, Pharaoh says, get out of here before we all die. And they grab everything they can quickly and they whoosh, out they go. And as you know, Pharaoh changes his mind. What did I do? Who's going to make our bricks? Who's going to be our slaves? Who's going to do our labor? Who's going to do our cooking and ironing? My word, what's going to happen to us? So he sends the chariots after him. And he brings his people, one and a half to two and a half million strong, you know, straight to the Red Sea, mountains on either side. And the Egyptian army, the might of the empire right behind them, he brings them to an entrapment. Now think about this if you were part of the crowd. Now please understand, they don't know the next chapter. They don't know the next chapter. All they know is that I'm supposed to be an Israelite, a child of God, and he just delivered us from slavery in Egypt, and here I am about to either be wiped out by the Egyptian army or drown in the sea. And I can't go left or the right. I'm in a hot spot and a rock right in the middle. 
You talk about confusion. God, why did you bring me out of Egypt? If he's just going to bring me here and die in this entrapment. What's going on, Moses? You know, that, that, that's what divine disturbances do. They, they, you, God does things that you don't understand. And you don't understand the, the, the plan behind that disturbance. There is a reason for him to have brought Israel to that position in time. If that's so he can reveal his glory and his power in a greater way that they have never experienced before. And God is doing the same thing in our days, yours and mine. And now you know the story. The Red Sea parts and out they go. Abraham, hallelujah, the, the, the father of the Israelites, praise God. God told him, Abraham, I wish you to go kill Isaac, your son. What? You made me a promise. Now the promise came through after I waited 25 years. And you mean to tell me you want me to go and kill my son? I thought you were the author of life. I thought we were not allowed to do human sacrifice. I thought you were pro-life. Abraham doesn't say anything. The Bible says he trusted God. You come out, you, you don't think Abraham was disturbed? You don't think Sarah was disturbed? Because I don't find any record of him telling Sarah. <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> Hallelujah. He took two servants and he took Isaac with him. He said, son, we're going to sacrifice him. We're going to worship. Took him to Mount Moriah. The point of mountain. Sacrificed him in He's got the knife in his hands. He's ready to bring it down. And God says, Abraham, Abraham. Lay not your hand on the child. For now I know. See, Abraham probably didn't understand what God was going to do. But if he wouldn't have obeyed, he never would have gotten to that aha moment and this confirmation of God, this confidence that God had in him as expressed on Mount Moriah when he was about to kill Isaac. In the New Testament, we read Paul exhorting on it, saying, you know, he, had, he was full of faith, understanding that if he killed him, God could raise him from the dead. So he's, he was more worried about doing the word of God and the will of God than anything else. You may not understand what God says and why he says it to you, but it's to your advantage and mine to obey him even when we don't understand it. He doesn't always do that. He wants us to be a people of understanding and reason and logic. But, you know, God many times when he wants to do something new and something magnificent and reveal his glory, he's going he's gonna to mess with your mind. He's going to challenge you to obey contrary to your logical reason. And you look at Martha and Mary and the story of Lazarus. I call it the Lazarus effect. You know, chapter 11, the Bible says uh, Lazarus, one, who, one of the good friends of Jesus, along with Martha Mary, he loved this, these three. He went to their house many times to hang out when Jesus let his hair hang down. Pardon the expression. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. To fellowship and just get a rest and get a break. He used to go to Mary and Martha's house and to Lazarus. It's, it's these three. And the Bible says that Jesus was out on the trail and, and he's ministering to people left and right. And a messenger comes from Martha and Mary and says, Hey, Lazarus, whom thou lovest, is sick. He's very sick. And Jesus makes this statement that is taken back by the messengers. In John eleven four, he says, This sickness is not unto death. 
He's not going to die. <laughs> and then they go a little bit further. Another messenger comes and says, hey, don't bother. It's too late. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus tells his disciples, well, he's just asleep, you know. But he's asleep. And they said, well, it's, it's good that he's asleep. Lord, they let him. No. It says, Jesus says in John eleven fourteen. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. <laughs> now, why would he say that if that sickness is not under death? He sent the message back to Mary and Martha. Can you imagine being Mary and Martha? Or maybe it's your child. Maybe it's some loved one you have. And you get the word from God and a prophet says, it's not under death. Everything's going to be all right. And the child dies or your loved one dies. But you see, what Mary and Martha didn't understand, it was confusing, yes. It, was, it shook them and probably shook their faith. But God was about to do some new thing. God was about to do something miraculous, something that they will never forget, something that we still preach about and talk about to this day. Because when he got there four days late, he stood at the mouth of the sepulcher and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead, hallelujah, came out of that grave alive. And they cut off those ribbons from him that he was wrapped up in like a mummy. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the Lazarus effect. I'm talking about divine disturbances. Disturbances that can confuse us. Well, we know, I, I know God is not the author of confusion, no. But we don't always understand what God is doing and why. And there are disturbances that he brings on our life. Now, our life is a microcosm of the greater you know, world at large and culture and civilization. God does things on a big scale in divine disturbances. But he does the same thing on an individual level as well. When he has revealed himself to you and you're, you're languishing, you're, you're, you're dilatory, you're, you're, you're negligent of what you know you should be doing, God will mess with your life. He will bring you trial after trial, one thing after another. Why? To get you to come to the place where you realize that the most important thing in your life is the invisible supernatural kingdom. It's the spiritual realm that's important. It's your eternity that's more important than anything that you have in this world down below. And so God intervenes. And we look at the world on a large scale, we see many disturbances. The Noah's flood was one. You think that didn't disturb things? Imagine me knowing the family. I mentioned this, and I'm slowing down at some of these events because I want that to soak into you. The how God uses these divine disturbances, and it could be massive in scale that affects the whole world. You don't think the flood affected the whole world? Continental shifts, earth turning or shifting on its axis, axis 23rd and the third degree, the polar cap being formed, the continents already formed suddenly. You don't think that was cataclysmic? You don't think that was earth shaking? You bet it was. Talk about the Tower of Babel, confusion of languages, separation of nations into language groups. You don't think that was... Great disturbance, mess with people's plans, their incomes, their economies, their future. God messed away. 
to fulfill his plan. Praise God. When you look closer to us, for example, in the 20th century, I'm familiar more with the 20th century events uh, uh, and, and, and I'm a history uh, buff and I, I taught history for a while, American history, and I did study world history as well, Middle Eastern history, etc., etc. But you know, if, when we look at, you have to begin to look as, as a child of God at world events and disturbances in the light of God's plan. You look at World War I. My grandfather fought in World War I. Both of my grandfathers did. One was a cavalry officer, another a cavalry person riding on horses. The other one was, uh, was uh, an officer leading uh, 60 men in the commander unit, had four machine gun nests and, uh, on the eastern Russian front in World War I. I got pictures of it. Um, but what was World War I about? Yeah, it, it was upheaval. It was a, a great disturbance, to say the least. But you know, there was a British Jewish scientist who developed uh, a cheaper and more effective and powerful form of gunpowder that helped the British war effort in World War I. And as a result of his contributions, the people in government said, what do you want? He said, I don't want any payment. I don't want anything. I just want your promise that you will establish a homeland for the Jews in Palestine. As a result, in 1917, the Balfour Declaration was made by the British government. Lord Balfour was the one who made that proposal approved by the British leaders. That indeed, one day, as if they conquer all that territory in the Middle East, which they're about to do, that they're going to use their authority and their power to establish a homeland for the Jews. Well, that promised language, 1917, 1927, 1937, 1927, 1937, 30 years, 20 years. After, okay, 1937, and then it comes 1947 after World War II, 6 million Jews are killed in the ovens in the Holocaust. What a terrible tragedy. What an incredible divine disturbance. But it created a world sympathy for the newly created United Nations to vote to establish the state of Israel and the land of Palestine for the first time in 2,000 years. And it was to fulfill God's plan that he already had established from the very beginning. Jesus prophesied about it. The prophets prophesied about it. Isaiah did. I can go down the list. But what I'm telling you is that God has a plan. And whenever there are major disturbances in the world and in culture and other things, it's because God wants to reveal us something greater than we've ever seen before. It is a fine-tuning in our minds and a clarification of what God is doing. And he's trying to get us to get our eyes off the shaking, shaking kingdom and get our eyes and get our feet onto the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because we know what's coming. This kingdom is going down. This kingdom is being shaken. 
This kingdom has no great future, but the kingdom of God does. And we have a choice to make. Which kingdom are we going to serve? Recently in our times, I mean, we had 9-11. You talk about a major disturbance. I remember that. How many were alive and remember some of 9-11? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Look, look how it changed us. Churches all of a sudden were full with prayer meetings. Uh, people were distraught. Wow, we, we, we are attacked on our land? 3,000 people dead? The Twin Towers collapsed? Changed the way we travel ever since? Changed our security measures? Changed our banking laws to the Patriot Act? There's so many other aspects and so many ways that it changed us. Then came COVID, March of 2020. Another major world disturbance. Disturbed world travel, the economy, financial markets, commerce, industry, government operations, healthcare, schools and colleges. That's the, the way we hold meetings. And even to this day, it has a tremendous effect. It affected how we do churches and how we now utilize online platforms more than ever before. We're reaching more people, but you see, God is using these disturbances to remind us who he is and to remind us what kingdom we are a part of. And he's shaking things to test your faith and mine so that that which is unshakable may remain. So we see all the things that are going around us and and we wonder what's going on. And the answer is that God is shaking things up because he's got to do something big and he wants to get our attention and to get our focus on spiritual things. And when you, when you read from uh, verse 27 in Hebrews 12 in the New American Standard Version, let me look at it again. It says this, watch this. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, means physical things that God created, okay? So it consists of the physical world. So the shaking, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things so that those things which cannot be shaken may, remove, uh, may remain. See, so the purpose of these divine disturbances that God allows us to go through is to, to separate and to remove those physical things that are causing so much distraction in your life and mine so that it caused us to get our eyes off of the true meaning of life, right. off of God himself. So God is saying to us, we got too attached to this created physical world. You're too much attached to this time and space that you live in. You allowed eternal things to fall into the background of your life when it should be in the forefront. And I need to reassert some of these things. Get you back into the spiritual dimension and bring it front and center in your life. And I will bring the spiritual to the forefront, disturbing your physical realm. I will shake all those things that are physical in your life. All those tangible things. So that can get your focus on the right things. I want to get you weaned off of your five senses so you'll be more sensitive to the spiritual realm when I talk to you. And you can get a greater appreciation and yieldedness to my purpose and my intent of what I'm going to do in this world. 
because he wants you and I to be a part of this, his kingdom. So we have, in, on many levels, become too attached to our secular environment. So he shakes things up to make sure that we understand that there's a great distinction between heaven and earth, the spiritual and the physical. And there's a great distinction between the eternal and that which is temporal. But we forget that sometimes. We get so wrapped up in this temporal and this physical realm that, again, we keep forgetting about the spiritual. Now, God allows us to go through these disturbances as a body of Christ. And, you know, our, our body goes through the same things. Uh, you know, in your physical body, you get sick sometimes, don't you? I hate getting sick. You got a stomach ache. You ate something. I can think of. I don't often get sick, sick, but when I get sick, I get sick. Oh, man. I toss my cookies like you. The whole house knows it when I toss my cookies. I'm sorry. But you know, you, you, you got rumbly in the tumbly, <clears throat> and you feel horrible. And you don't, I don't, I don't, I don't like getting sick. I don't like vomiting. Even when I know that I'll feel better when I do. I, I just want to avoid it. I'm, I'm sorry, but, but I, I have a point to make here. That God is the same way in his body. He allows certain things to bring discomfort to us. So that he can get us to vomit some things and get rid of some things that don't belong in there. Has he been working on you? <laughs> have you been vomiting lately? <laughs> God have mercy. Hallelujah. But you know, it, it, it wasn't pleasant. It's never pleasant to go through stuff like that. But God does it with a purpose. Remember the testimony of Marty Holman. He's not here today. Remember he had COVID? Remember how close to death he was? How about Derek Seebecker? He's not here. He's there grieving with the family with the loss of his father. We buried him yesterday, or rather we had the funeral memorial service yesterday. He testified. You know, he had a grudge against God. He died twice on the operating table by having his shoulder operated on for, for what was it? That rotor cuff, you know, rotator cuff. Uh, in any case, he died twice, and they had to bring him back and and God dealt with him while he was out. Now, that wasn't very pleasant, was it? Did God cause that? I don't think so. But God used it. Hallelujah. He, he knows how to talk to us and how get us into uncomfortable situations where we, where we convulse. And we're in a hospital bed. And we begin to think about our eternity. We begin to think about our mortality. We begin to think about what's really important in our life. And so God sends us into storms sometimes, and he sent his disciples the same way. And, you know, storms, I, I heard, and I never knew this, that storms out in the ocean when you have a big storm, that I don't care how big the waves get, the disturbance from the atmosphere, from, from that thunderstorm, or, or no matter how violent it is, it only goes about 25 feet deep, 25 feet on average. And beyond that, it's nice and, and still. And so if you're a fish in the, in the ocean and you got this big disturbance going out on the surface, guess what the fish do? They go down 26 feet. And it gets away from the disturbance. And I think there's a spiritual principle there. I think Jesus talked about this when 
he referred to the wise man who dig deep. And we heard about some of that, in fact, in, in this last, first night, I think, uh, that Brother French preached. But this very scripture, he referenced dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it. For it was founded upon a rock. Do you understand that some of the, the, the disturbances that have been going on in the culture and politics and governance and in the world is working on the church body to get us to dig a little deeper, to get beneath the disturbances, to get beyond the craziness and the confusion and make sure that you're dug down deep on the foundation that cannot be shaken, that you're part of the church that is forevermore. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. And so God works on his body. Thank you, Jesus. He wants to get us ready for his coming. You know, in Ephesians 5, uh, the Bible tells us that Christ died for the church and he gave himself for it, that he might do what? That he might present it to himself a glorious church. Yeah, sanctified too. That's verse 26. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's the kind of church that Christ is looking for. Amen. Now, I know when uh, sometimes when, if I wear, if I pull out a shirt from the closet that is a little bit too wrinkled, my wife stops me and she said, let me have that shirt. You know? She turns on the iron, makes me look nice. She wants me to look nice when I preach to you. Hallelujah. Amen. But I think there's, there's a principle there too. Wrinkles. Wrinkles. When you put that iron on that shirt, you apply heat and pressure and steam. And if the shirt could talk, it says, ouch, you're hurting me. And, and, it's, it's, and really, that's what God is doing to us in our lives. He doesn't want a church with wrinkles in our spiritual clothes. He wants to get those wrinkles and those spots out. How does he do it? He gets an iron. He puts us, he puts us in the fiery trial. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you. Count it all joy. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's important, though. Jesus does care about our wrinkles. God is doing the same thing on us so that he would look good when he wears us. And the Holy Ghost inside of us, as Christ in you, the hope of glory, he wants you to make him look good. Well, then in verse 20, I'm coming, I'm in, I'm closer to the end here. I'm getting closer to the finally, brethren. Hallelujah. But this is important. Okay, I'm taking my time with it. So it says in verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. The King James says grace. And you know, we say grace when we give thanks and prayer. That's the word that is referred to in this word grace. It's not unmerited favor. It's referring to giving of thanks, having a heart of gratitude. Now, he's just talking about going through things that are shaking and 
the things that cause pressure in your life, things that bring you to a place of confusion, a place where you don't know what's going on and everything's shaking around you. And he says, well, therefore, we, since we receive a kingdom we cannot, that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Gratitude. Be thankful. Let us have grace. Not for the pain that we're going through, but thankful for the purpose that God is allowing us to experience that. Because there's a greater purpose than just the pain. Everything that Israel went through that was difficult had a purpose, purpose behind it. God wanted to reveal his glory to God wanted to bring them to a greater revelation than they've ever had before. God wanted to do something greater and better than they've ever experienced before. And we have to understand that whatever you're going through, whatever trial you have, whatever problem you're wrestling with, it is God working the iron and ironing your, 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 the wrinkles out of you, but also he is bringing you to a place where you can see his purpose and what he wants to do in your life. So we got to be thankful, not for the hurt, but for how God is going to use that moment to further his kingdom and further your place in it. And that's important. Do you see the difference? And there's examples to you. To me, the, the, the greatest example, well, in, in, in chapter 12 of, of Hebrews. Watch this. In verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Boy, there's a message right there. Despising the shame. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't enjoy going through the cross. He didn't want to go endure that pain. If you don't believe me, look at his words of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He yielded himself to the will of the Spirit, right? And so when he was on the cross, he was not thankful for the, for the pain and the suffering and all that he had to go for. But I'll tell you what he had on his mind. He was rejoicing over what the result is going to be as a result of his death and his suffering and his burial and his resurrection. And that's the example that you and I need to follow. That no matter what you and I go through in pain and suffering and hurt, rejection and whatever God allows us to go through yet in this life and this world before the second coming of Jesus Christ, that there is a divine purpose behind it and it's to get us in a better position than we are right now, particularly spiritually. So yes, be thankful. Not for the pain you're experiencing, but be thankful for what the end result is going to be when you come through to the other side. That's a mindset, and that's, that's a tall order. But that's really what the writer of Hebrews is telling us to do. Can you be thankful for all that you're going through right now? Can you be thankful for all the hell that you're contending with? It's tough. Well, sometimes we feel inadequate, I know. Sometimes I do. But even in our inadequacies, maybe you say, I can't live up to that. Look, we have a God who's all-sufficient, a God all-powerful, almighty. He can help us through it all. Be thankful. It's interesting to me. Did you ever notice when Jesus fed the multitude of the 5,000? He said, anybody got any food? And they said, 
well, this little boy's got this lunch here, two fish and five loaves, you know. Those little small, dinky things. And he said, okay, that's good. He said, make them all sit down. And what did he do then? He took that food and he gave thanks. Why? That he didn't have enough food to feed the people? No. Because he saw beyond the insufficiency of the present and looked at the sufficiency and power of heaven and what God's going to do with the Spirit. Well, how can it be? Now, I'm not trying to confuse you by the oneness. No, this, we're talking about one God. Remember, there's this difference between, between the Spirit and the flesh. It's, it's, Jesus was all God and all man. He was invisible Spirit and visible flesh. And Jesus said this in John 5, 19. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son, that's a body, the flesh, can do nothing of himself. It's not the flesh that does any work. But he seeth the Father. It's that indwelling spirit in him. For what things soever he, the Father, doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. And how did Jesus know what the Father wanted? How did he, how did he know what the spirit inside of him wanted to do through that flesh that he's occupying? Prayer. Getting away from distractions. You know why he went a little many times? It's to get rid of distractions. Get rid of the voices. Get rid of those demands that are on him day in and day out. And in prayer, he sees what's to happen. And no doubt he saw what was coming. God wants us to get to that place where we can give thanks for the things that we're going through. And we get our eyes not upon how insufficient we are for the task that is before us. All the things that we want to do or we feel that God is calling us to do. We need to look at not on how weak we are, but how strong he is. And we even sing about that. I am weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Right? But do we believe it? And do we practice it? Hallelujah. Praise God. And so when your world falls apart and problems overwhelm you, then give thanks by faith. Not for the problems. Not for being overwhelmed, but giving thanks to God for what he is going to do. That takes a major paradigm shift in us, really, to begin to think that way. My loneliness. God has speak to me. Speaking to me. My health. My loss of job. My pain. My hurt. My rejection. All that really deeply affects you and you're struggling with. God is using all of those things to bring about a greater purpose. And we have to be thankful and focus on the end result, not the process. Can you say praise the Lord? Praise hallelujah, hallelujah. And then finally in Hebrews 12, 28, next to the last, he says, may we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. In other words, get busy for God, uh, making your calling and your gifts uh, sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's more important now than ever that you and I show to the, to the unbelieving world that we believe in an unshakable kingdom. We have to live like we're unshakable. A faith has to be. Why? Because the world is looking for it. 
Everything is moving. Everything is shifting. Everything is changing. Hallelujah. Look at all, all this, this change in morality, the change in education, the change in politics, the change in all kinds of things throughout the world. Finances. We know what's coming. It's unsure. People are in upheaval. They don't know what the future holds. What am I going to do if, if my IRAs goes you know, bad or my 401ks and my Social Security? What's going to happen to that? That's the future. That's worry. We'll hear more about that Wednesday night. Praise God. Think about today and think about what you're going. Understand that God is all sufficient. He's able to do exceeding abundantly what you ask or think. And he will provide you with all of your needs according to his riches and glory. We quote that scripture sometimes and yet our mind is not really in it. And worst of all, our heart's not in it. It says offer service, acceptable service to God. The world needs to see us and that we are serving a kingdom that's unshakable. And it says the reason for our gratitude. It's because our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Imagine ending up with that in the, in, in the New Testament. Why does he put that there? Well, because the Hebrew mind, that was a powerful statement. You know, the ones who are used to Jewish history and used to animal sacrifices, you know, that the animals sacrificed on a brazen altar and the fire of God would come on down and devour the sacrifice. Remember what happened in the story of Elijah too? Rebuilt the altar. Fire comes down. Let the, let the God who answers by fire be God. Sure enough, here comes the fire. Consumes that. Praise the Lord. And, he, and so he, he's reminding Jewish Christians, but us too, that our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Well, what he's reminding them and us is that that consuming fire on the altar and the sacrifice had to do with sacrificing an animal. And it was, a place, it, was a, it was a place of judgment. A place of judgment for sin. That was bad news for the animal, but good news for the people of Israel. Because as the animal was killed, it paid for the, the, the sins of mankind, or the people and the nation of Israel. And the sins were rolled ahead until Christ came and redeemed us with his blood on Calvary. But the point is that they received forgiveness and mercy for the sins at that altar. It's forgiveness. And that's what happens at an altar of repentance. It's a place of death. It's where we die out to ourselves, die out to our past, and we ask God to forgive us. And we don't bring an animal to sacrifice and shed his blood. We refer by faith back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who John said was the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. By faith, we look at Christ and his sacrifice, so we understand that because of his blood, because of, of the judgment of sin of humanity upon him. That's why he died. Because of that, we are the benefactors. Because of God is consuming fire. You could say in a sense that Christ was consumed in the judgment of sin on Calvary. Not by literal fire, but the fire of judgment for our sins, your sins and mine. Praise God. Hallelujah. Well, uh, Stand with me, if you would. God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews was telling the Israelites that God is doing some remodeling. 
And whenever you do remodeling in a house, like you did in the house of Israel, it goes with a mess. You tear things up before you remodel, right? Amen. And so it was in Israel. God had to remodel. He demolished the temple only to focus and shift his attention to a new temple. Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. Totally redid and reworked the old covenant. And instead of writing it on the tables of stone, he wrote it on the fleshly tables of our heart. When a spirit came inside of us and filled us, they made us a part of that kingdom that cannot be shaken. Indeed, the Jewish temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. Judah ceased to exist for almost 2,000 years. Until May 1948, Israel was reborn as a nation again. You know, I think Israelites were reminded as we that even though their earthly kingdom was shaken out of existence, we're a part of a kingdom that never can be shaken and can never collapse, never overrun, never overtaken by any earthly ungodly king or potentate. Never. Aren't you glad about that? I'm glad that we don't have to elect some worldly, earthly leader to be the king of heaven. <laughs> oh man, what a mess that would be. I'm glad Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. I'm glad Jesus is the Lord of my life. This world is in a mess. And it's still shaking. Earthquakes. Look at the earthquakes in the Middle East now. It's nothing new. Jesus said, man, on the last days, I mean, that's going to be one of the signs of signs of wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, just earthquakes in diverse places. This last one killed about 70,000, 80,000 people. That's intensifying. It's like the earth is, and creation is in labor pains. The waves are coming. God is trying to birth something new. It's going to be His coming soon. But it's going to come with the damage of remodeling. It's going to be wiping out some kingdoms here. And yes, the one kingdom comes. The Bible says it's a rock, a stone that is tossed at the feet of the big colossus of all the kingdoms. But then as you know, we, as we come back after the rapture, establish his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth. That kingdom <laughs> destroys all. But that kingdom that he establishes on earth here, that's the kingdom promises thereby are fulfilled to Abraham and all the Jewish people where he reigns in Israel and we shall be his kings and priests for a thousand years when the thousand years are up that's when comes the final judgment but that kingdom on earth becomes an even larger kingdom and becomes the only kingdom until it fills all the earth and then God will have a new heaven and a new earth and there's nothing left of this world, nothing left of its kingdoms, nothing left of that Babylonian system of world domination and this, this, this leaving God out of everything. No, no, no. We're going back to the way it was in the beginning where it's all about God as in the Garden of Eden. 
Adam and Eve, there was no other government. There was no other, other entity to contend with. Midas Lucifer came the tent. They could have kept them out, but they didn't. But there's coming a day when there will be no more Lucifer. There will be no more Satan. He's cast into the lake of fire forever. And everyone that forgot God, everyone that didn't choose to set their foundation on the rock, said, I'm here to ask the church today if you're a part of this unshakable kingdom. Are your feet on solid ground? Are you standing on sinking sand? I don't know what kind of trials and tribulation or rejection you may be going through. It's time to get a new perspective, a new vision on what God is doing in the world and what God is doing in you and in this church. I believe it's time for us to go a little bit deeper. And many of the young people in this church have been doing that, fasting more, praying more, getting in the Word of God more. That's where it's at, church. Digging deeper. Taking more time for fasting and prayer. And seeking God. Seeking God. I want to be ready, don't you? I want to see Jesus. He's coming soon. He loves you. He loves me. And he doesn't want us to think that the things he allows us to go through is for naught. There's a purpose. There's a reason. Got our attitude right. Would you sing praise to you? Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus.